From the New York City area, welcome to the Badass Counseling Show, where the master badass himself, Sven Erlinson, takes you deep and gives balm for the soul, baby. Welcome, welcome to the Badass Counseling Show, a counseling episode. This is not a lightning round episode. This is a counseling episode. And wherever you might be tuning in from, whether it be Austria or Aspen, Colorado, Austin, Texas, or as we're going to discover today, Australia. We have a guest from Australia. I am joined in studio today, however, with uh, Casey over there in the booth, as you guys all me, always hear me say, there's really nothing to say, but we love it when she comes out of the booth. Maybe she'll deign to do so sometime soon. And right next to me is Rockin' Robin, uh, Rob the Rocket. Rob, how are you today? Tweedly deet. That's it. <laughs> the Jackson 5, brother. <laughs> well, you know, that was a remake, but we'll leave that alone. Because, oh, they remade Because it was way, way before your time. You're such a young man. I really respect that. <laughs> that you know so much at such a young age. You make me feel like I'm so deeply ignorant about so many things. It's like being in college. Well, two things. One, who originally sang Rock and Robin? Um, let's Bobby Day, I think, probably around 1958 or so. And then maybe 14, 15 years later, the Jackson 5, well, that was the new thing. And speaking of new things, I must say, I must give a shout out. When I was driving to the studio today, I heard the new version of We Didn't Start the Fire. Have you heard it? By, I, I have not heard that. By Fallout Boy. But I saw that Tracy Chapman won a country music award for Fast Car as redone this oh. year in a country style, and it was fabulous. Wow. I was hoping she would actually make the, the song faster. It always seemed to be a little slow for me. It's a fast car, dude. But I want the song to be faster. Anyway, come on, let's get to work. We have a guest waiting for us to quit dicking around. Rob, tell us about Kaya. All right. Kaya wrote in and said, my boyfriend of seven years broke up with me recently because I had emotionally exhausted him. I felt blindsided about it and I blamed myself. I lashed out in anger for every little thing. I was unable to apologize to him. I was always negative, and while I was working on these things, he felt that I was going backwards instead of progressing forwards, especially after seven years. I struggle with anxiety and depression and have since gone into the worst grief, heartbreak, anxiety, and depression I have had in my life with intense feelings of loneliness, worthlessness, and hopelessness. I recently learned that my anger, negative outlook, and inability to apologize are actually rooted in something deeper, which I would love help in unpacking. While how I felt in the relationship contributed to my behavior, the roots of my pain come from before my relationship started, as I learned from your podcast. I would love a second chance with him. I also don't want to be this pained person anymore now that I understand myself a bit more. I would extremely appreciate your help. Kaya, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Pleasure is ours. Um, so we're just going to hop right into the deep end here, you and me, and uh, I'll hold your hand and we can do it, all right? Um, <clears throat> you, you stayed in your final sentence, I also don't want to be this pained person anymore. And I understand that since the breakup, you know, it's probably been intensified and, you know, the depression, the anxiety and so forth. But were you a pained person prior to the uh, departure of your boyfriend? I never really considered that question before, but I think I would say yes, because I've always struggled with feelings or I guess beliefs that I wasn't important, that everyone, everyone's just going to leave me. I never really felt like I belonged anywhere. Mm. And I was always worried and anxious about how people were looking at me or judging me. Mm. If, did I say the wrong thing or um, did I hurt anyone? But what I found interesting was I was a people pleaser with people around me, but to those who, who are close to me, like my family and my ex-boyfriend, um, I would shut down or lash out. And it's confusing to me why I have two different, I guess you could call personalities, mm -hmm. but the root of it, I would imagine, is the same. Mm. Um, so... 
yeah, I think I would say that I was pained okay. before the relationship okay. or during the relationship. All right. Um, and you said you've always struggled with feeling unimportant, feeling judged and sort of insecure. And, and then you sort of ended by saying to other people, I've always been, you know, outside of your immediate circle, sort of, you've always been a people pleaser. Uh, but to the people closest to you, such as your family and such as your boyfriend, you would lash out and shut down. Um, <clears throat> when you say you've always struggled, you use the word always struggle with feeling unimportant and feeling judged. Uh, so these feelings of feeling pained are not new since this, you know, the relationship ended that I've always struggled with these things inside. Um, and you say you always have, what's the earliest you remember struggling with this sort of thing? If you were to really think about it, and I know you said, wow, I've never really thought about it. So I want you to think about it a little bit more here. What do you recall is sort of the earliest you remember feeling that unimportant, like you don't matter and people are judging you and, and, you know, feeling unimportant and so forth. What's the earliest? I was actually thinking about this question because I recently listened to a podcast episode and you were talking about messages and not just verbal, I guess, verbal affirmations or whatever the opposite of affirmation is. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember growing up, I don't know how old I was, but I remember my parents, and I love them. I, I do love them. So it, I feel bad for um, saying these things. But I do remember like around the dinner table, for example, no one would talk. Everyone was on their phones. Um, my dad would always be on his phone because of work um, and everyone would just be silent. And when I would say something or when I would, my mum, for example, for a conversation, she's not she's not very communicative. It would be, I guess, one word answers or short sentences. It wasn't it wouldn't be a conversation. And I realized that I didn't really have emotional emotional support growing up. And I realized that that is actually what I needed. So I guess that was the earliest. The, the earliest memory and then that kind of seeped into feelings of being the black sheep of the family oh. immediate and extended um i always thought of myself as a black sheep i didn't know why were you treated differently from how your siblings were treated because someone could definitely feel like a black sheep you could definitely feel that way if you're feeling you know um, judged and if you're feeling unimportant and so forth. But if everyone is, if your siblings were being treated the same way, then we really have three black sheep, which really means there is no black sheep, that we've got a, a, a different thing going on. Whereas if you were the only one being treated this way, then yeah, you were definitely the black sheep. Um, were you the only one or was it the others as well? So I have one sibling, older sibling, mm -hmm. and I don't recall when we were younger being treated differently, mm -hmm. but as we grew up into the late teens, early 20s, I could see a difference in how we were being treated. Mm. And what was, if you were to sum up the difference into your late teens, early 20s, the fundamental difference between how you were treated versus how your older sibling was treated, the fundamental difference was what, in one sentence or less? Gender. He would be allowed to go out a lot more. He got his driver's license earlier than I did, even though I wanted my driver's license earlier than when I got it, as an example. And was the reason given for those things and more, was the reason that you were given, if you were given reason, was it because, well, he's a boy and you're a girl, or was there no reason given? Because you translate, you've basically given me two reasons. You've said we were treated differently. I said, how, you know, where's the, the black sheep thing? Well, it was late teens, early 20s. And I said, well, how did it manifest? And you said, well, he could go out more and he could get his driver's license earlier and so forth. And so you're chalking up to the gender. But a minute ago, you said it was because you were a black sheep. So which one is it? Mm -hmm. Well, the, I, the feelings of being a black sheep started much earlier than late teens, okay, early 20s. Okay, and that's what I'm wondering. How was your black sheep, how was that conveyed to you? I felt left out. Left out. Okay. Yeah. So you were left out. Uh, anything else? 
because you got the feeling. You put a word to it. I felt like a black sheep. So something must have been happening around you that caused you to feel that way. And I'm just wanting to know what happened that caused you to feel like a black sheep. The only thing that I could think of is at that time, when I was younger, we moved um, we moved countries. Mm-hmm. And then, so with that, I guess, different of env- difference of environment and difference of culture and everything else, um, I didn't feel like I belonged, like at school, for example, or well, at school. I didn't feel like I belonged at school. I couldn't really fit in. Mm-hmm. And then at home, it felt like I was just supposed to fit in mm-hmm. without having that emotional support, mm-hmm. thinking, just thinking back. So I didn't fit, I didn't feel like I belonged. Right. I didn't feel heard. Right. And those messages that we get out in the world when a child, for a child, that means at school, basically, those messages yeah. that we're getting out there that we're receiving, whether it's you know, um, I'm no good or I'm unwanted or I'm teased or I'm bullied or I'm just not, you know, I'm just an outsider, whatever it is. Those messages, if a child is in the home, is in a home where they're getting lots of love and affirmation of their worth, then those messages outside of the home, they might hurt, they might sting, but they don't land as deeply because there are these powerful counter messages coming from the home life. The child's love cup is being filled by the parents and by the family. So if somebody at school drops in a, you know, sort of a turd of, of bullying or neglect or judgment or teasing, you know, they're teasing little Sven today, it falls into my love cup. That rock of, of judgment falls into a love cup that's already full of a lot of love. So it doesn't land as hard. But uh, if, if there's not love, lots of love being put into that love cup and attention and so forth, then that love, then that rock that falls in there, it hurts a lot more. And those rocks accumulate because there's nothing to sort of flush it out. There's nothing to sort of dilute it, um, you know, and make it less than. And you didn't get that counter messaging at home. You, as you said, you know, my, I was not getting, to use your words, the emotional support. If you could name one thing, and I know it's uncomfortable for you to talk about your parents uh, say anything disparaging, and I'm not going to ask you to disparage your parents or say something bad or say anything untrue. I would never ask you to do that, okay? I'm just asking you for the truth. What happened? And I guess what I'm asking in this case is, what was the one thing you would have most wanted that would have felt emotionally supportive? What one thing above all else would have made it, I'm not saying it would have solved all your problems, but what would have made the biggest difference for you? Validation. In what form? How? How would you have gotten the validation? Would it have been, when I walked, well, let me tell you, when I was growing up, when I walked out the door every single morning, Every single morning before I walked out the door, my mother, uh, if I didn't pack my own sack lunch, she had packed my sack lunch for school. Even when I was in high school, I used to have a lunchbox. I, it was so stupid, but I liked it. Um, anyway, I, I would take my lunchbox, the little thermos in there. I thought I was being retro and cool. Mom would hand me my lunchbox. She had packed me a sandwich and she always wrapped it the same way and a banana and she would have carved into the banana, banana you know, you know, I love you, Sven, or something, and handed me my lunchbox. And as she hands me my lunchbox, she always said, have you had your daily hug yet? And she would stand on one step up from me in the back door and she'd give me a hug and she'd say, I love you, Sven. And my father had already given me a hug and a kiss. All right, so the validation came in the form of uh, a hug, came in the form of I love you. It came in the form of taking a moment from her day give me attention all by myself. When I had five older siblings, they would have already left for school. But And it came in the form of handing me a lunch. She had already done an act of service, uh, words of kindness, and a, a piece of affection. My father, the same thing. He had already sat down with me at breakfast. We had read something together. You know, I, my dad was a pastor, so it was usually a Bible verse or something. He had had breakfast with me, asked about how I slept, and he'd said, I love you, and give me a hug. So I was getting that every day. So I was getting an f- affirmation in the form of touch, words, and acts of service already before I walked out the fucking door. So there are many ways that affirmation, or, you know, I have a client who, many uh, who struggle with this, but he was completely neglected as a child. And so for him, affirmation of his worth would have been simply that they took time 
to put together a fucking puzzle together or something like that. Time. So what would have most affirmed your worth? What would have felt the best for you? What form? Words of affirmation and quality time mm. and physical touch. Mm. So time I really like hugs. Oh, yeah. I really like hugs and I'm wondering if it's because I never was, I was never really hugged when I was a kid. Um, I was, my, my parent, my mum wouldn't say, well, recently she has started to, um, but when I was growing up, there was no, I love yous or, um, and my dad would say that he loves us, but then his actions would give a different message. What are you talking about? What sort of actions are we talking about that his actions would give a different message? He would be on his phone. Um, when, we were to- when we were talking to him, he would still be on his phone. He would prioritize his dad, so my granddad. So whatever my granddad would say, he would follow. So, for example, um, I remember vividly growing up when I had made plans with my friends, if my granddad would say we're having a family lunch or dinner at the same time, I would have to cancel my plans with my friends Mm. to go to the dinner or the lunch Mm. or whatever it was. What's the underlying message being said to the child in those times? When you were forced, when you had something going with your friends, and I mean, every parent has to do that now and then. That's one thing. But if it's a repeated thing, what's the underlying message being sent to the child? I'm not important. That's right. That's right. That the needs of the parent, uh, and again, uh, parents have to do that now and then. Part of that is normal, right? And, And that we are still on a team and the child doesn't always get whatever they want. But you're talking about something different, aren't you? Yes, because it is repeated. It was for years. And even just thinking about it, even if that were the case, if I still had gotten the emotional support and the validation that I needed, I don't think it would have mattered as much because I understood. I understood that um, in our family, at least, it was patriarchal. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was fine because every family is different. Um, but the underlying issue, if I can call it that, is basically now I have no idea how to self-soothe. I have no idea how to regulate my emotions. Everything's just bottled up and I feel numb and ap- apathetic about everything. Yep. And. I believe it all stems from the lack of emotional support, the lack of communication in the family. Yeah. And I have no idea how to like flush that out because I've been journaling and everything and it's just not getting better. (laughs) Right. No. And that's, go ahead. And I just, I just feel worse and worse about myself. Yes. And so the, the question then is what's the origin? And you even said that yourself. You know, I recently learned that my anger, negative outlook, and inability to apologize are actually rooted in something deeper, which I would love help unpacking. So you're already expressing sort of your own discontent with your own process. You know, I can't quite get at it. I don't know what it is. You know, I understand you, Sven, that there's something there, but I don't see what it is. Um, And I want help understanding that. So I hear you loud and clear on that. Um, A couple of things, and there's a particular nut. In order to crack that nut of what really is inside of this, why is it that I have this apathy? And I know it's due to lack of love, but this is just not connecting and so forth. There's going to be a very difficult uh, conversation that you have to have with yourself or with me, and we're going to get to that in a minute. But before that... um, I want to address this thing that you talked about with, uh, you made the comment earlier, you said, I always struggled with feeling unimportant, feeling judged, been a people pleaser to others. And this was one of the nuts you were trying to crack. Why have I been a people pleaser to other people, like outside of my immediate circle, but to the people close to me, such as family and my boyfriend, former boyfriend, I would lash out and uh, shut down. And so... When you say the people close to you, 
was I accurate in saying boyfriend as well as immediate family? Is that how you're characterizing when you said people close to you? Yes. So you presently, just those those basically four people, right? Brother, mom, dad, boyfriend, ex-boyfriend. Okay, just for, so I have a point of reference. Uh, Can you tell me your approximate age? You okay doing that? Uh, Early 30s. Early 30s, okay, that that orients us here. Okay, early 30s, and you were with your boyfriend for seven years, so that puts you roughly mid, early to mid-20s when you uh, started dating him. Now, what's fascinating is you talk earlier when we're trying to discern, why am I lashing out and shutting down to the people close to me, but I'm a people please or nice to me? Um, here's what happens. When someone is closest to us, we get close to people, generally speaking, we get close to people because, or we allow people closer because they give us love, okay? If you meet Susie on the street and you guys become friends, or let's say you're, you and Susie are work buddies, and then one time you just you say, hey, let's, you know, let's go grab cocktails after work, and she's like, hell yeah, let's go, let's go, you know, eat something on the Barbie, and, uh, you know, and then you go and uh, you go have drinks and then you guys make that a routine thing and slowly but surely you and Susie become friends. And then you decide, hey, let's take that trip to, you know, uh, San Diego together. And you get on a plane, you go to San Diego and you spend a week and a half in San Diego and uh, you have a great time and so on and so forth. So you and Susie are slowly becoming more friends, more and more friends. And the reason we allow someone close to us, generally speaking, is because they give us love and it's fun to give them love. I mean, there's an exchange of energy. There's an exchange of love and people feel good. Okay, generally speaking. Now, what happens though is if we need that love from someone, uh, what we sometimes do, and I was one, and you describe yourself as one, if we were already a people pleaser, we give, 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 because if I give more to Susie, then she'll give some love to me. But what you're saying is once that person gets certain a, a distance, a certain distance inside sort of the perimeter, I almost turn. Because I were let me ask you this with your boyfriend. Were you a people pleaser in the beginning with him? Was I a people pleaser? Or have you been this uh to use your words, uh negative, unapologizing, lashing out person uh the entire time that you've known him? I mean, because if you were, why the hell would he want to date you if in the very beginning you were unapologetic, negative, and lashing out? Why would he want to date you if you were that way in the very beginning? Yeah. I don't think I was to the extent that that I became at the end of the relationship. And when did it change? When did you turn on, you know, and I'm going to be a little playful here, but when did you turn on sort of full-on raging bitch? When did that happen? Because you didn't start that way, but it sounds like you sort of characterize yourself as ending that way. When did you start to ramp it up? Was it uh, two months into the relationship, two years into the relationship, two years before the end, or was it the last two months of the relationship? Roughly, when did you shift from being somewhat, you know, tough, or we'll put in a nice phrase, negative and unapologetic, to full-on not a a nice person? When did you change? Not being able to apologize has always had always been the case. Okay. And even when I try to apologize, I recently found out that I wasn't apologizing properly. You were doing the I'm sorry you feel that way thing? No, it was more, um, I'm sorry I raised my voice or just I'm sorry. It, it was never the, I'm sorry I raised my voice. I'll try to work. You must have felt or I must have made you feel X, Y, like the whole thing, right. which I recently learned you're supposed to do in a meaningful approach, which makes sense. You see the value in that now. Yeah. Right. Okay. So you yeah. didn't. Yeah. Okay. And, um, okay. With, with the negativity, I would say that it, quote unquote, to use your words, ramped up maybe a year and a half ago, maybe if I or two years ago. Okay, then forgive me for asking um, the obvious question: Why two years ago? Why not four years ago? Why not six months ago? Why two years ago? Why then? The only thing I could think of was two years ago. I started a new job and that didn't turn out very well. The 
my man, my direct manager was a bully. And then I had to go through that, which my ex-boyfriend was very supportive during that time. But that also put me into a deeper depression than I had been. Um, and then I went to HR, talked to people, and that was resolved. And I was moved to a nicer area, and it's been really nice ever since then. But I think that what had happened triggered my negativity and it became a lot worse from that point onward. And it, it sounds like then, even after you got the newer job, the one where it got better, even after that happened, you didn't revert back to old self that a new pattern had been established and cemented and you stayed in this pattern of dumping your crap onto your boyfriend, right? Because you said, when I got the first new job, it didn't turn out well, there was bullying by my boss and that's sort of what I basically heard you saying is I shit rolls downhill as we used to say in the military. So you'd eat shit from your boss and you'd let it spurt out all over your boyfriend and he was really good and he was really patient. So he was eating your shit. And then, but I reported to HR, they put me in a better job. It's great. But when you got in the better job, you weren't getting, you know, shellacked or eating shit from your boss as at all or as much. So you, on one hand, you'd think, well, then I'd stop dumping my shit and being negative onto my boyfriend, but you didn't stop. Isn't that right? Yes, I would say that's correct. Cause I would still focus on the negatives. I would still get anxious before work don't want, wouldn't want to go to work. And why would, wait a minute, the, wait a minute, wait a minute. If you were, why would you still be anxious to go to work? If you had gotten this new environment and you're in it a week, you're in it a month, uh, you're in it, you know, three months and it's nice and people are nice to you. Why would you still be anxious to go to work? I don't know. I Speculate. would just wake up from it. What usually anxiety is fear. Anxiety is a derivative of fear. We fear something happening. What was it you feared happening that you would sort of have to conjure up the energy to go to work? I think the fear of the unknown, uncertainty. It was going. It was going well. My manager was super nice, but something could change. Ah, uh -huh. let me ask you that. That's a really fascinating question. Let me ask you in. Did you ever have, this is going to sound like a dumb question, and it, and it is, but, you know, indulge me. Um, did you ever have times in your life prior to that, let's say in childhood, did you ever have times where things went well? Wow. The long pause tells the story. Probably, but I don't remember. Isn't that fascinating? Mm-hmm. Because that, that, it can't always be bad. It couldn't have always been bad. Well, it can. There are homes where it is. But what's fascinating is that you had to think a very long time. There's nothing wrong with that, thinking. But the mere fact that it doesn't come to mind. There are some people where I would say, you know, did you have any good experiences? Were there times when things were well in your childhood? And they'd look at me and say, Sven, you're an idiot. Of course I had good you know, times where things went well. I had lots of those. Or some people would say, yeah, I had good times. I had some crappy times too. But yeah, of course I had times where things went well. I ask you, did you have times where things went well? And there's like a long pause and a whole bunch of crickets. Probably, but I really don't remember. Probably, but you don't remember. Wow. Which implies it was sort of this barren wasteland. You want to, you say probably because you want to believe there had to have been times of good, but you can't think of one. And that's okay. I'm not, I'm not criticizing you. I'm not. But what I'm saying is it's fascinating what that says about your childhood. And not only that, what that imprints in a child is really there are no good times. And so if you ever encountered a good, such as a, a boyfriend you liked, or such as a job where people are really nice, you wouldn't know what to do with it. It would be so fucking disorienting. It would be like for you to have a period of good in your life would be like you moving to a new country, which you did. You said you did that. It's so disorienting. It's like, wait a minute. These people don't have the kind of trees I'm used to. The houses are different here. 
People talk funny. I don't fit in. Okay, for you to actually have a good experience, such as a job you like, do you know what that's going to bring? The same thing it's going to bring when you go to a new country. Do you know Do you know that they say that the first thing to go when you're visiting a new country that you've never been to before, the first thing to go is your sense of humor. Why? Because we're so uncomfortable. Humor comes from a state of being relaxed, generally. And But we can't relax when we're in a new environment. We're on edge. We're anxious. We're trying to we're take in all the sights and sounds, right? We're afraid. We're afraid of something potentially bad happening. We don't know what to look for. Well, you were in that situation with your work. It was so disorienting. It's not that you lost your sense of humor. What you didn't have was the ability to believe that this would last, that this was even real. Yes, it felt good, but you didn't trust the experience in this new job because it felt good. And it was a period of good, but you didn't, you had never had that before. So it's so fucking disorienting. Does that make any sense? It does actually. Like I was, I remember being carefree as a child. Mm -hmm. Like there was no problems. My parents always had food on the table, like everything physical needs wise Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. was fine. But in an emotional aspect, no, I can't. I guess like, like there were happy times, but it's, yeah, I really can't remember, but what you said. So we don't know. We don't know, Kaya. We technically don't know if there were happy times. Because you say that, you know, probably, probably, but you can't remember any. And I, I, I want to stay on this, uh, but, and there'll be more to come. But right now, let's take a quick break. I'll be right back. The holiday season is just around the corner. And if you're anything like me, you struggle to find the perfect gift for those loved ones that could use a little pick-me-up. Badass Wisdom is the perfect gift to give your friends and family that just need a good hug, but in book form. Badass Wisdom is out now on paperback and audiobook on badasscounseling.com. And if I'm being honest, you're a fucking moron if you don't buy it. Happy holidays from me to you. This show provides soul counseling intended to entertain and inform and is not medical advice. Now, back to the badass. We are back with Kaya, and we're talking about her childhood. And she recalls being carefree as a child in terms of all the physical needs. And uh, physical needs were provided for, but we're trying to recall if Kaya had any sort of stretches of good times in her life and in her childhood. And so let me ask you, uh, Kaya, tell me one, not stretch of good time, just tell me one good time thing, one good time that you had in your childhood, perhaps uh, with your family, one good time? Um, I remember when during New Year's Eve, we would have a family dinner. So everyone, extended family, everyone would come to eat dinner. And then after dinner, we would all gather around in my aunt's place, at my aunt's place. And we would have like a like a dessert desserts buffet, if you will, mm. and um, waiting for the fireworks. Twelve, we would go upstairs um, in our building and watch the fireworks together. Love it. That would I would say. I like that. that. I like that. Uh, just out of curiosity, during the New Year's Eve extended family dinner gathering and dessert buffet, which actually sounds lovely. I like the idea of a dessert buffet um, and the fireworks and so forth. Uh, just out of curiosity, would dad be on his phone? He wouldn't be there. It would just be my aunt and uncle because it was their house mm-hmm. um, and all the cousins. Aunt, uncle, older cousins, and but also your parents and your older brother, right? No, they would go home. Oh, so, so we all did the building uh-huh. and then... Um, we would, we all lived in a building and then we would gather around for dinner, um, in the, in the main, the main part of the building. Sure. And then after that, we would, the cousins and my aunt and uncle would go to their house, my aunt and uncle's house and the cousins would gather around for the dessert. Oh, fun. And then the other, I guess. And then my parents would go um, up with my granddad 
to my granddad's apartment, if you will. I see. After the dessert buffet. No, they wouldn't go to the dessert buffet. Okay, so I see. So after the communal celebration in sort of the communal area, mom and dad would go up to be with granddad, your dad's dad, who we already established that your dad does everything granddad says. Um, and you would go with cousins and auntie and uncle up to aunt and uncle's place. There you would have the dessert buffet. And you had all already had the dinner in the communal area, but yeah. now you're having the dessert buffet and then the fireworks. And of those uh, of those three, you, you cite really three sections of the evening. There's the, there's the family dinner, extended family dinner. There's then dessert buffet up with auntie and uncle. And then there's fireworks time. Of those three sections, rank order your favorite from one to three. One's your most favorite, two was your middle favorite, and three was uh, sort of, you still liked it, but it was your least favorite of the three. Least favorite would be the dinner. Mm -hmm. Then number two would be the fireworks, mm -hmm. even though I love fireworks. Sure. The first one would be the dessert buffet. Of course. Who wouldn't love a dessert buffet, right? And was it just the desserts, though, or was it just all cousins and the action? And, and, you know, it was more than just the food, though, right? Yeah, it was the engagement. Sure, the engagement. I love that. Great choice of words. Isn't it fascinating that, A, I ask you to cite a memory that you have of a one good experience, and you cite something that happens once a year. And you cite a three-stage experience of a dinner, a buffet, and fireworks. And you say that your least favorite was the different was the dinner. Your most favorite was the buffet because of the engagement. And the middle favorite was the fireworks. Because I mean, come on, who doesn't like fireworks? You know, uh, that's not true. Some people can't handle the loud noise or whatever. So I get that. Uh, but anyway, the point is. Isn't it fascinating that the one family memory that was your favorite that jumps to your mind after a bit of a pause, your parents weren't even at? Your favorite part was the buffet and the fireworks and they weren't there. That's one of your favorite family memories is the family memory each year where mom and dad were absent and people actually fucking talked to each other and laughed and kidded around at my aunt and uncle's house. You got to admit, you picked a fascinating choice for a good time in your history. What yeah. does that feel like to realize that? It feels like every belief I have about myself, every fear I have as well is reinforced. Say more. more, say more, help me understand. Every belief um, and every fear I have is reinforced. I feel I'm worthless, unimportant. Everyone's just going to abandon me or reject me or judge me if I'm not this perfect or this perfect person or this person who does what people want them to do. Um, so I guess fear of rejection Fear of, I have social anxiety as right. well. Right, but how does this experience connect to that? We're talking about a good memory from your childhood, and I mentioned that you had the one memory you happen to choose is a once-a-year thing, and it just so the best part is when your parents aren't there. And I'm wondering, how does that connect with the, I asked you, how does it feel to realize that? You said it, it, it that every belief and fear I have is, is being, you know, sort of... Um, further reinforced. reinforced. Why? How are those two things connected? This experience, this realization, and your fears and beliefs. Because they weren't there. And so your happy time is when your parents aren't there. And so that reinforces your, what fear or what belief does that reinforce? That I'm, I wasn't important. Well, yeah, but it also, it also makes the point, well, wait a minute. How does it reinforce that you're not important? doesn't it? Because, because New Year's Eve was always a big thing. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. They isolated themselves rather than spend time with us. Right. With you, with your cousins, with their sibling. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Although I guess the other way is they spent time with my granddad who was getting older. and Right. So what does that say about priorities? That they prioritized 
granddad, I, and even in your dad's choices, he was he would always prioritize dad that he mattered and and you didn't. But what it says to me is a different message. What it says to me is is not just that you don't matter because they were skipping out on the whole family event. This was a major family event. But what it says to me is that your happy memories have nothing to do with them. Your happiest memories are when you're not around them. I literally ask you, tell me a good memory from your childhood. Tell me a good time, a good memory. And you cite one where they weren't there. You're the best part was when they weren't there. Yes, the dinner was good. You liked the dinner, but not nearly as much as the desserts and the fireworks. In other words, you're, you're the only, ha- the, not the only, you said I probably had happy t- times in my life, probably, which meant earlier you couldn't think of anything. Then I push you to think of just one event. It doesn't even have to be a period of time. When we talk about a happy time, three months or three years or those years that, you know, we went, my family did an exchange with a teaching family in Australia and we went and lived in Australia and that was such a happy time for us because I wasn't around the bullies at school. A happy time is a period of time. You couldn't come up with the time. So I just asked you for one experience and the experience you come up with was an experience where your parents weren't there. What does that say? See, to me, it says, and I asked you, well, why was that buffet so happy? You said, because there was, do you remember the word you chose? Engagement. Engagement. Right. When I engage with someone, if I ask someone a question, it's like I am taking a step toward them. When I disengage, I am taking a step away from them. A step towards someone shows interest, shows you matter, shows I want to be with you. And other people were not only engaging with you, your cousins and your auntie and your uncle, but they were potentially listening to if you had a joke or if you had something to say, you mattered. Your happiest times when you were when you mattered, when people engaged with you, when you felt a sense of worth, a sense of fitting in, a sense of these are my people. And boy, these desserts are yummy, auntie. Thank you for making them or uncle, whoever made the desserts. Okay. Um, And so tying it back then to what you were talking about earlier, that I'm a people pleaser to others, but to those close to me, I lash out and I shut down. The reason we lash out and shut down to people is that's a defense mechanism. You're lashing out and shutting down because the people closest to you are the ones who have always done the most damage, made you feel the most unloved that we so long to be close to these people. I let someone close because I want love, but when they when they get close, it gets scary because they also have the power to hurt you. Lashing out, shutting down, those are that's like you putting on shield. You're not gonna hurt me, I'm not gonna let you hurt me. I'm, I'm this pile of goo inside. I'm, I'm so wounded and afraid and hurting inside. I can't let you hurt me more. So I'm gonna keep you in your place, boyfriend, and I'm gonna kick your ass. And I'm going to hurt you. I'm going to let my shit pour out onto you. And uh, A, because I can't keep it anymore, your love cup is so full of shit and pain and hurt and rocks that got put in there by not mattering, by no one engaging with you, by you being treated like a lesser citizen when your brother got to do X, Y, and Z and you didn't. All of these things convey messages. You're not good enough. You're not loved. You know, you weren't, there wasn't a lot of the, you know, food and stuff was provided for, but there wasn't a lot of time, words, and touch. Right. Well, your father said the words, but his actions said something completely different. So his words are just bullshit, basically. And you didn't even know how to apologize, which I'm not blaming you for, but you were not taught how to apologize, which means it wasn't modeled for you. If you had parents who apologized and said, you know what, Kaya, come here. I hurt your feelings, and that was not okay of me. I did. I should not have said that you're a bad girl. I should have just said, you did a bad thing, sweetheart. You're still a good person but I treated you poorly and I'm sorry. Okay, so if, we have, if, we, if I have a parent modeling apologies, I learn how to say apologies. And if when I apologize, I'm not attacked, but I'm actually treated with respect, thank you for your apology, Kaya. Yes, I, yes, you did. I asked you to take out the trash each day this week and you didn't do it. And I appreciate your apologizing for not doing it. That shows that you're, you're growing up and you're taking responsibility and I respect that and I appreciate it. It's okay, it's not the end of the world. Uh, just go back to taking out the trash. Okay, so your apology in that case is being honored by your mother. So that's gonna incline a child to apologize more. But you are in a relationship where you didn't even know how to apologize, which means you weren't apologized to, and or you didn't see apologies modeled 
between your parents in their crosstalk or in your parents' interactions with other people. So all of these things were not taught to you. And furthermore, so you lash out at people who have the potential to hurt you, okay? And, but you people please people around you because you still need love poured into your love cup and your parents ain't fucking doing it. That, that stopped a long time ago, never really happened. I don't, I don't think that's any grand stretch. That's accurate, isn't it? Right. They weren't emotionally supportive. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, and so then we get to when I was talking about that nut that has to be cracked. And this is where it gets really scary for you. I guarantee it. And it's simply this. When one of the first questions I asked you was, you know, whatever the hell I asked you about. Um, and, you know, your response to my question, I don't even remember what the question was, doesn't matter. Before you got to the answer, do you know what you said to me? You said, my parents, I love them. I do love them. I feel bad saying these things. That's the answer. It didn't matter what came after that. That's the answer. That's the nut you don't want to crack. And in part to what you already referenced, you know, you come from a patriarchy, which is pretty much where a whole lot of people come from, which oftentimes can be very toxic. We all agree. Um, but that's not even the issue. It's not the system that got you. It's that you, you have two parents that you feel bad. I just asked you to reflect on a question. I wasn't asking you to, you know, make up stories about how evil your parents are. I was just asking you a question and you throw you threw three qualifiers in before you ever answered your question. I love them. I do love them. I fear saying bad things about them. Right. So what we're really talking about isn't just the lack of love, your apathy due to lack of love from your parents. What we're really talking about is you have been conditioned to not speak ill of your parents or your parents' parenting or your childhood, or anything. I guarantee it. Am I accurate or inaccurate? And you can tell me to go fuck a duck if I'm off, but is that accurate or inaccurate? I would say inaccurate. Oh, I can't wait. I, I love it. I love that answer. Why is it inaccurate um, that you were taught that you're not allowed to question uh, their parenting? and or Because you said, I feel bad saying these things. Why would you feel bad? Speaking of your parents, if it's a truthful statement, why would you feel bad? Why would you feel the need to reassure me that you love your parents? Did you think I didn't, I wouldn't think that? So you twice tell me you love them and then you say, I feel bad saying these things. Why would you feel bad saying something about your parents unless you had been conditioned to believe that you are bad for saying things about your parents? Because I'm afraid that if I say anything negative about them that people would judge them right exactly so you're you are protecting your parents you are protecting your parents and so then yeah. it's a potential if there are truths down there about your parents that are not pretty such as i ask you for a happy memory of your memory of your childhood and your happiest memory or one the one that came to mind did not include them that's the dessert buffet and the fireworks. It got fun after they left. So if I ask you for a truth about your childhood, if you're conditioned to, I don't want, I have to protect them and their, you know, what people think of them, then you're not going to let out your truths and the pains that go with them. You're going to keep them in. You're going to protect them at the expense of your feelings. You're going to protect their feelings at the expense of you getting your pain out. Because I can't say anything about bad, bad about mom and dad because you may think bad of them. I'll never meet your parents. I don't know your parents. I have no idea where they live or what their names are. But you're afraid to say anything. Has it occurred to you that the nut you have to crack is the one you most fear cracking? And that is the one that you believe would hurt them. But it's not going to hurt them because whether it's with your therapist or in your journaling or in your conversation now with me, it has zero impact on your parents. We are using an alias name today, deliberately, your choice. And that's fine. I have plenty of clients do that. That's fine. It's not a big deal. No one will ever know. 
No one will ever know. And so, and yet you're still afraid to say it. They will never hear this conversation and still you're afraid to say the truths. Now, you not wanting to do it here is fine, but you not wanting to do it in your own journaling, that's a separate issue because they're never gonna read your journals. So what is it you're really afraid of? If you were to journal about it, if you were to talk to a therapist about it and just tell the truths, what is it you're really afraid of? If you, your therapist is never going to meet your your parents, what are you really afraid of? That's very interesting because um, recently I did start journaling about them when I was unraveling all these things. And one thing that I noticed was that when I was writing, as I was writing the hurtful things that they did, I was getting hurt more. It hurt to bring those memories up, you mean? It felt like when I was writing when I was writing the words, it felt like I was hurting myself. Yes. Yes. Exactly. And that's why does a lot that, of people make- Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's the point. That's the point is to bring up all of those feelings. They hurt when they come out. It hurts to feel those memories. But I'm hurting myself by hurting my parents. And how do you believe you're hurting? Is it that, let wait, then I need a clarification. Is it that it feels sad and so forth to um, write down these truths about your parents? Or is it something else? I think it's because if they knew, they would feel hurt. Right. And that and that fact hurts me. Right. And, and let me ask it, you. Go even ahead. Even though they wouldn't Right. Let me ask. Right. They would never know that you're writing these things. Right. No, I get it. Let me ask you. If you were to were you if you were to hurt your parents with your words, and you know, let's just say, you know, you're at a family dinner and you said something, oh, I don't know. If you were to lash out at them, like you say you do, you literally said, I lash out at my parents, my brother, and my ex-boyfriend, and I shut down. And it hurts them. If you lash out and it hurts them, are you a bad girl? in their eyes and sort of if you had done it when you were growing up or in your growing up, would you have been seen as a bad girl or treated as a bad girl or feel like a bad girl? Because that's sort of what you're describing now. Feel like a, feel like I was a bad girl. For, okay, for hurting them. Let me ask you then, why do you lash out at your parents? Doesn't it make you feel like a bad girl? Yes. And isn't it fascinating that- after the fact, after the isn't fact. it fascinating that you do it anyway? And you repeatedly do it to the point where you basically call it a pattern. To the people close to me, I lash out and I shut down. You're so fucking angry at them. You are so fucking angry at them that you can't even keep and it in. I don't feel bad when I'm doing it. You said, I feel bad after the fact, which means when you're doing it, it probably actually feels good. It feels good to hurt them, even though later I'm gonna feel like a bad girl. Don't tell me you're not angry at them. And I also feel like even like during the breakup, my mom has been spending time with me Mm -hmm. and even her being next to me, not doing anything, not saying anything, just being there. At times I would feel irritated and I don't know why. Well, Well, I didn't know. And oh, you said I didn't. Well, which is it? I didn't or I don't? What's the why? What is the reason your mom's presence near you irritates the shit out of you? What's the real reason? In one sentence or less, what is it? I thought it was because of my anxiety. (laughs) But you don't, but but, but wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. When Susie at work sits next to you, you're not, your anxiety doesn't kick in or you're not, you're not lashing out at her. You're not going, excuse me, irritated with Susie at work. No. So it's not your just general anxiety. You would think you would have more anxiety with someone you know less, but you have more anxiety with someone you know better. In fact, you have more anxiety with the person you probably know better than anyone on God's green earth, your mother. So why her? In one sentence or less, why are you so fucking irritated by her presence? The suspense is killing me, Kaya. Why are you okay? I'm gonna give you a few you I'm gonna give you a few ideas. You pick one or you throw in your own um. A, she's a phony. B, 
everything she says is wrong anyway. C, you know she doesn't want to be there. D, you're like, why are you hanging around me now? Fuck you. Where were you fucking 15 years ago? Oh, all of a sudden I matter. Or E, she's really wanting something out of it. Maybe confirm her worth as a mother. What is it? One of those reasons or tell me something, but I want you to at least spitball one reason of what it might be. Why does your mom irritate the shit out of you when she's near you? Why am I important now? Is that Does that feel like it might be true? That's the only thing that's coming up. Fair, fair. Do you know what that implies? Why am I important now implies, and, and I'm going to use colorful Sven language, implies where the fuck were you 10 years ago? It, that why am I important now means I'm angry at you for not be, making me important before. You're so fucking wounded from your past and you are so hurt by your parents that your love cup is just full of rocks and manure. And that's what's spilling out. The reason you lash out, even at someone at someone you claim to love, your boyfriend, is A, to defend yourself from him hurting you, but more importantly, that's all you got in there. Your life's mission now should be flushing out all your pain, looking into the stuff that has been taboo. Mommy and daddy shit and your real feelings. I want to ask you, Sort of uh, one of my closing questions here for you, and it's simply this. Um, well, it's, a, it's a two-part question. One is very simple. It's yes or no. Uh, for you in your own future, do you aspire to someday have children of your own? And there's no right or wrong answer. I'm just curious. I do. Okay. I do. So that's a yes. And then, so then let me ask you this question. And again, it's a dumb question, but it's sort of a Sven question. You'll be thinking like, this guy's a fucking idiot. What does this question have to do with anything? But just indulge me. All right. It's a silly question, but it's an honest question. It comes from an honest place, honest curiosity. And that is that when you have children of your own someday, if you choose to do that, um, whether on your own or with someone else, what percentage of your mother's parenting will you take into the parenting of your own child? You know, you know, no parent is perfect, so I know you're not going to say 100%, and no parent is totally 100% awful every moment of every day, so I'm guessing you're not going to say 0%, so just spitball it. You can change your mind tomorrow, but what percent of your mother's parenting are you going to take into parenting of your own child? Based on how I feel, maybe 40%. 40%. And what percentage of your father's parenting are you going to take into the parenting of your child? And again, there's no right or wrong answer, just whatever feels right to you. How do you want to raise your child and what percentage of that will be, you know, what percentage of your father's parenting are you going to use in the parenting of your own child? I would say around the same, 40%. Around 40%. All right, just out of curiosity, um, I don't know what you do for your work. I don't know where you live, don't really know anything about you, and that's not necessary, but, you know, uh, I'm assuming you, you, you see in your work life or in your social life or, you know, grocery shopping, you see parents and kids a lot. You see parents and, you know, interacting and whether it's at sporting events or at the orchestra, or, you know, just out in public. I want to ask you this question. What percent does a parent have to be a good parent in order for you to consider them overall a good parent? Does a parent, I mean, no parent's going to be a hundred percent, but for you generally, a parent should be a good parent, what, 80% of the time or... Um, you know, I had, I had one client who was horribly beaten as a child, horribly beaten. And he was so, you know, of the opinion, he's like, I know this is wrong to say this man, but as long as the parent is not hitting the kid or saying evil things to him, they're a good parent in my book. You know, he came from a very skewed opinion. So he said like, fuck, you know, 20% or whatever, but it's, it's, it's okay. What generally speaking does a parent, if you were to aspire to be a good parent, if you want to look at it that way. What percent would you, taking reality into account, what percent would you uh, aspire to be a good parent most of the time? You know, what percent would it want, want to be? Or you can answer it the other way. What percent does a parent have to be a good parent in order to be considered them a good parent in your eyes? I would say 70%. 70%. No, sorry. No, um, hold on. I'm not good at math. So it's all right. 80, 90%. 80 or 90%. That's fair. You gave me a fair and honest answer. You even rethought your answer so you feel good about the answer. What you're telling me then is neither of your parents were good parents. You only will take 40% of your parents' parenting into your parenting of your own children, which says 60% I will not take their parenting into the parenting of my own children. So you're saying 40% I'll take, which means you see 40% of what they did in parenting as good. And yet you set the number at 80%, possibly 90%. 
of what needs to be done right and percent of parent needs to be good in order for you to overall consider them a good parent. So in other words, if it's 80 or 90%, they're not even halfway to being your idea of a good parent. How does it feel to hear that? Hurt. I feel hurt to hear that. And the 60% is for the emotional support because I think that's extremely important. The very thing that's, I agree with you 2000%. The one thing that you consider extremely important was absent. Not just it was small, it was poof. And, And so now when mom sits next to you, when you're going through a hard time now in your early 30s, you're like, fuck off. Where was the emotional support then? It doesn't even feel real. The very thing you always wanted, she's giving and you don't want it anymore from her. Think about that. This, Kaya, this is the shit that you need to be journaling on. You need to be going in and cracking that nut. If you have not read my book yet, there's a hole in my love cup. You I'm need, reading it now. Good. I'm and reading. That's right. And you need to be doing those exercises. But the one thing that's going to unlock that that the key that's in your pocket that's gonna unlock that jail cell is you giving yourself permission to look at your parents honestly, look at your childhood honestly. You, it's like I tell clients, you never have to say word one to your parents in person, never. You don't ever have to say anything, you don't ever have to confront them, you don't have to do anything with your parents. I can still heal you. But you do have to slay the parents of your childhood because they fucked up royally. The one thing most critical to good parenting by your own, how you assess parenting is emotional support, connection, engagement, the pouring of love into the love cup, to use my words, and they didn't do it. All right, if you're not willing to look at that and how that felt and remember those memories where they weren't there for you and how it felt to sit at that dining room table and no one asks you a question and or more than would be allowed up for a one word or one sentence answer, how alone you felt, how judged you felt. If you're not willing to go into that and the fact that your mother and father were in fact the origin of those experiences, it was their home that you grew up in. Whether they were 20 or 40 when you were born, they were infinitely more powerful than that child. They had the power to make it good. And if you're in your early 30s, I have kids in my early 30s. This was the 1990s when you were born and raised, okay? That means late 80s, early 90s, society, Western society at large generally was aware of the fact of what good parenting, better parenting can be. And they didn't engage. They're always on the phone. You were got, you got the messages that you don't matter. If you're not willing to go back and look at that childhood and go into that childhood and slay the parents of your childhood, you can, you don't have to change one thing in your relationship with them nowadays today, not one thing, but you do have to go at, go back for your own health to give an honest assessment of the pain you felt, the anger you felt, the anger you still feel, the pain that's still in there, because none of that were you born with. There was never anything wrong with you. All of that crud got put in. Your feelings of not being unimportant or I don't matter, those were the lies perpetuated to you by the actions and words of the people around you. And you've got to go in and get all that out, which means you have to also journal about feeling like a bad girl for simply stating the truth. You don't ever have to say anything to them in person, but in your freaking journaling, you bet you do. You have to, all you have to do is tell the truth. Why is it a crime to tell the truth? You're not saying it to them. You're not hurting them one bit, but you're going back to those parents because they were probably your age when they had you or when you were growing up and you're going back to them at that age as now an adult and you are protecting that little seven-year-old girl. And you're saying to your parents, fucking talk to your kid. Talk to seven-year-old me. You're going to them and saying, you know, be kind to 12-year-old me. And that's what you have to do in order to heal. So I want to thank you, Kaya, for coming on to the show. You've been a really fascinating guest. I've really enjoyed interacting with you. Is that a good thing? Yes. No, it's, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. You've been so honest and you've been hesitant to open up on some stuff, which is someone being honest. You're just, you're just putting your feelings out there. I'm a little afraid and so forth. And you did it. And I love that. 
That's authentic versus I'm not going to talk about it. Nope, nope, off limits. You did great. I want to thank everyone else for tuning in on the show. Uh, great episode today, Rob. Absolutely. Uh, you did a great job of getting that out of her and it, it needed to come out. Now, she was the courageous one. She was. And so I'm going to say to all of our listeners out there in listener land, thank you so much for tuning in and listening to this really interesting story. And I think we all see parts of ourselves in Kaya. Some of those fears and, uh, you know, sometimes lack of memories and, and the importance of assessing that childhood and, and how it can really help in our own healing. So on behalf of KC over in the booth and Rock and Rob the Rocket next to me, to all of you out there, I say have a kick-ass day. The Badass Counseling Show is strictly copyrighted. No copies may be made without the express written consent of the Badass Counseling Show, LLC. The Badass Counseling Show is produced by Karen Camparelli and Robert H. Friedman. Executive producer, Sven Erlinson. Original music by two-time Emmy Award-winning composer, Trevor Morris. Have a kick-ass day. Hey.